If the virus had a theme song, I think we found it. Uh, it is no good. Uh, vaccines, we need two shots of those. And med, there's a toll on these healthcare workers. Anderson University scores well in the latest U.S. News Report rankings. And a fascinating book by a local author that fills in a lot of the gaps many of us missed in our history education. All of this and more on today's Anderson Observer podcast, news from people you trust. And it is nearly February, and a lot of people are doing the countdown to spring thing. Uh, the pandemic continues to hang over the like a fog over most of the news. You can't talk about anything without talking about the pandemic part of it. And um, unfortunately, we have to continue to talk about it because it is affecting all of us. I guess the good news is vaccines are being rolled out, however haltingly and slowly. Um, at least to some essential workers and those over 70. We've talked about that before. Finally have a schedule over the next eight weeks of vaccines to be given at the Civic Center by both ANMED and DHEC to deliver the doses. And um, South Carolina continues to struggle to get enough of those doses. We're receiving 62,000 per week right now from the federal government and hope that number will rise to 72,000 a week soon, which is still not enough to uh, give us a timetable for when we can include groups not included in that essential workers and 70 and over. I know everyone's anxious to get the vaccine, both shots in their arm. And remember, it has to be two shots. If you get one, don't forget. I think they'll remind you. Uh, and so we can get back out and move on to getting together again. And meanwhile, if your family members are not working in health care, it's really easy to forget the toll that these long months have had on our doctors, nurses, and support staff, both at ANMED and all our doctor's offices in the emergency room. In an op-ed written for the Anderson Observer, ANMED Dr. Wilson Softly wrote that the long hours and shortage of supplies and conspiracy theories and emotional fatigue were leaving even the most veteran healthcare workers sometimes in tears at the end of the day. I do want to hammer on that fact that Facebook, nothing short of nutcases that are making the jobs of our doctors and nurses much more difficult than necessary with their crazy theories and their denial of science. If you are on social media, I encourage you to report and block such nonsense and also to insist uh, that you're not going to listen to or allow the people who are perpetuating these dangerous lies to go unchecked. Uh, Facebook will follow up if you report something and if it's uh, one of these crazy theorists, they will take it down. So you can have, make a difference even on something like the social media. Also, it's a really good time to send a note. Yeah, sit down, write it down with a pen or a pencil and put it in an envelope and put a stamp on it and actually drop it in the mail. And maybe even include a gift card to one of your friends or neighbors or family members who continues to fight on on the front lines of this pandemic and the healthcare workers in the healthcare industry and let them know they're not forgotten and we appreciate what they're doing. Uh, all this discussion about how essential and how valuable they are, I hope will eventually um, play out in uh, financial terms for some of the folks who are really not making good money that are out on the front lines doing this, including our first responders. Also in the news this week, for the purchase of the property uh, along South Carolina 81 North in front of McCants. Uh, $4.6 million for 15 acres there. If you've seen it, it's where the bowl is. Everybody calls it where people walk. And A spokesperson for the hospital said there are no current plans for the property and that if there were, they'd hold a press conference and tell us, well, that, that's not how news works. But um, ANMED is a nonprofit and it owns dozens of prime real estate properties in the county not including the land which houses hospitals and clinics, etc. And on all of that land, the county collects absolutely zero in property taxes. I can understand exemptions for the buildings where, places where the buildings are, the hospital and things that serve the public. 
but just sitting on really valuable parcels of land across the county that could be used for industrial recruitment um, and not pay any sort of taxation. Uh, Greenwood and Greenwood Self Memorial pays some fees, even though they're a nonprofit, they do pay fees on their their buildings and land. So, and a number of years ago, there were some proposals made here in Anderson to seek a similar sort of structure fee on Anderson's land holdings, especially the lands they weren't using. But it was uh, shot down, and some of the politicians who pushed it were actually pushed out of office. Uh, and we're talking about not only this new 15-acre site that's very highly visible there, right across from Chick-fil-A and and Starbucks and all right at Publix shopping center right there in front of McCants. But, you know, the old Motorola plant in Pendleton, they've had a dozen years or so. Um, that was very valuable land up there. And all of these are places that are losing funds and the Anderson County taxpayers are paying for it. AnMed was born back in the 80s out of a county-funded and founded Anderson Memorial Hospital. And I'm going to be fully, dis fully disclosed here. I was editorial page editor of the Anderson Independent at the time. And I fought with both my publisher, John Gant, and representatives of the hospital, of ANMED at the time, uh, arguing that uh, the county was simply turning over to ANMED county resources and property with no real compensation or back-end profit plan. Um, it had become a fairly common practice at the time to turn over to these corporate groups and to take over hospitals, but it was a foolhardy move at the time, and I said so, and I still think it was. I think that uh, the county could have cut a better deal and uh, benefited more from turning over the county-founded hospital to ANMED. Now, that's not to say over the years that, that followed ANMED has not made substantial contributions to this community and has not been good for the community. They are, and they continue to do so. And there's some great people out there. I know a lot of them. Um, the medical world has changed enormously in the past few decades, and so has the regulatory burden and competition, and there's, there's all sorts of issues here I'm not going to get into. But... It, as a result, it's become more corporate, and so has communications. It's often uh, difficult to get past the gatekeepers to get quick answers on information. Um, I share that uh, sentiment with a number of other journalists in the area. Uh, not to say they aren't good people, it's just the standard operating procedures there make it difficult to get you know, concrete answers on things. Uh, there are many amazing doctors and nurses and staff members at our hospital, as I said. And I am grateful for their dedication and work, and I hope people will remind them during this time especially how much we appreciate them. And at the same time, the growth has led to a monstrous organization in which, as a non-for-profit, they don't have the same level of oversight as county-owned entities do and are subject to. So there are a lot of questions begging to be answered community-wide, and I'm going to be working on that in the days and maybe week ahead. So stay tuned to the Anderson Observer, news from people you trust for that story. One place I do trust and have, have always had a great fondness for is the Anderson County Library from the time uh, it was in the, um, in the old Carnegie property, uh, the proper Scottish pronunciation of it. Uh, it has remained a, a real hub for knowledge in the county. Those of us who remember before the Internet, you call the librarian. That was your Google. That was your search engine. Uh, but they're having to move to curbside service and online service now as the buildings themselves have had to be closed remaining because of the virus and the numbers that just continue to rise here. It's still one of the capitals of the world here in the upstate. And uh, they don't show any signs of ebbing. But when they do, the county will take a look at it and look at reopening the buildings themselves. But in the meantime, you can get curbside service through uh, calling ahead and picking up a book or go online. And there's so many things available 
movies, books, audiobooks, and other things that they've made available. And if you don't have a digital library card, you can get one. And I talked to the head librarian, Faithline, who has put together a really good staff there and made our library system the best in the state, about how this pandemic has affected the library and what they're doing now and planning to do in the months and days ahead. Um, we started out really well. 2020 was gonna be a great year. We had lots of plans to do um, different things. Our makerspace was something we've been working on and it was moving forward. We were doing lots of programming. We had lots of people coming in here for events, for meeting, just regular meetings, plus programming that we did for, for kids and adults just to check out a book. Our audio books and e-audio books and e-books were just going going very well. So we were just tootling along, having, uh, you know, looking forward, trying to do what we could to bring people in, to get them interested in books, to get them interested in the programs and activities we had. And in March, it just came to a crashing halt. Before we get past it, remind yeah. me of what the makerspace was and how it was getting a lot more use. Okay. Our makerspace, we've, we started it small and it just was a, um, a place to people come in and do right now primarily handcrafts we have um like a sewing machine we have some things to do um uh, cutting out a cry cut machine that you can cut out uh, pieces uh, a big poster um, maker type thing we've had um, a scanner so you could come in and bring photographs or scrapbooking and scan them so you've got them on your computer so just different things they could make in-house or make small and it, but it was combined with our teen room so it was sort of a mixed-use thing, so we started looking at how we could expand that, and that's what we've been working on for a while now, and we'll continue that. Um, it affected us big time. We closed completely um, for a few weeks, and then um, sent, sent our staff home, gave them work to do um, at home. Most of them were doing that. We were still answering phones from home. Uh, taking book requests, ordering books, that kind of stuff, trying to get things going, keep things going. Because at that point we thought, oh, this is a couple of weeks, we're going to be out of this and we'll be, you know, back at work. Uh, how quickly that changed. And then we started bringing staff back in um, in April, I think, the beginning of April, where we could do more things in here. On a limited basis, not everybody was coming back in, um, but we brought people so we could do more. We started offering curbside service so that if people could just drive up, we'd put the book out for them or the materials they wanted, and then they could take it home and bring it back later. Um, we started quarantining our books because we didn't know about how long um, the virus lasted on paper or on plastic. We have found since then it's not as long as they originally thought, so that's great. But we still quarantine books right now. Um, and then we started doing virtual programming almost right away. My staff switched from doing things in-house with the kids to doing it online so that we had programs for the kids, we had some programs for the adults, so that there was something to engage them with the library. That was our goal, to keep them remembering that the library was here, we were still providing services, and we were still trying to help them in any way we could. Remind people about the programming, what kind of programming you're talking about. The virtual or? The virtual stuff. Virtual yeah. stuff. Um, a lot of it was story time for the kids. They did some STEM type programs too. Uh, so a lot was were the kids. For adults, they did some handcrafts. And they did crafts with the kids also at the same time. Uh, we've done a trivia night uh, almost every month so that we could, um, people could get, again, get engaged people in that way, be something different. We have our book, I think there's one of the book clubs that's online. So we've just tried to do anything, any activity we could think of um, to, sh to show people and to get them involved and get them 
seeing the library still there and, and providing services. We started looking at how we could actually work in a real environment and still keep people safe. So we started buying PPE. We'd already had, you know, we were, everybody was wearing masks. We, we instituted that almost from the very beginning, that if you worked here, you had to have a mask on. Um, and I, I really do think that's one of the things that has saved us from a lot of, of illness. We also started putting up the, the plastic shields you see. We started moving people, we, before we brought people back, we started separating them out so nobody was sitting right beside each other. The six feet rule was in place, so we have moved lots of tables. Uh, we also here, and for the public, uh, before we let them in, removed all the tables and chairs so that they weren't staying long, because again, it's the longer you stay in the building, the more chances there are. Um, so we took all, everything down. We used our meeting rooms to store all the furniture because we had to put them in. We put in the, the easy chairs as well as the tables so that we wanted people to be able to come in, get a book, get a DVD, and then then leave. Um, not ideal, but it was a way to get them to get something. So we started that the 1st of June, and we're one of the first in the state to start providing the actually in-house uh, service. Um, we just kept going. We, we, we stayed with that for a long time. We've had slowly added back some tables and chairs uh, so that people could come in and sit because that was the, the, probably the biggest thing we had requested. We stopped all meetings um, and we slowly added back the smaller meeting rooms. We still don't ha weren't allowing uh, the large, you know, gatherings that we had in the big meeting room downstairs. But on the second floor here at the main library, we have larger meeting rooms. And in some of our branches, we have, I mean, smaller meeting rooms. Uh, in our, some of our branches, we have small meeting rooms. So we allowed people to meet two, normally two people, to meet in those. And that way we were able to allow some people to have a little bit more privacy and a little bit of chance to um, get some work done that they needed to do. Because that, that's a constant request. Is we need, in fact, I got one yesterday. Someone wanted to, to book a room. Uh, so it, it's something we need to do, and we'll hopefully get back to that as quickly as we can. So we've stayed with that. We have continued to do that. We were trying to offer more services, trying, you know, trying to keep things going. We still weren't doing in-house programming, but we were doing the virtual and, and just, just moving along and keeping us going. Um, and then after Christmas, with the spike getting so horrible, we decided that um, it just wasn't fair to my our staff or the patrons to stay open right now. It's just um, we had a few cases with staff members. We know we don't know who's coming in. There's the, the new variants of the virus out there. Didn't know how that was going to affect us, so we went decided to go to curbside for a short period of time, which means that we don't allow people into the main part of any of our branches. Um, we are trying to work through that so that they can come in. Um, they can still come in and pick up a book. They can call us or go online and order books. They can just come in and we'll pull books for them. We're also providing um, at the main library uh, copying, printing, and um, faxing services. And some of our branches are doing that also if they've got the space and the ability to do it safely. Because that's the key word. It doesn't do any good if I do all this and then I still expose part of my staff. Uh, and some of the staff, and the staff is also going to a staggered schedule so that not everyone is here at the same time. So if one group gets sick, hopefully I'll have enough people in the other group to keep things going. And we've already had to sort of institute that at two of our branches. So we're, we're just trying to keep things moving along. Again, it's still not perfect and we would love to be open full time, but 
during this difficult time where the spike is so horrible, we just felt it was best, um, my board agreed with that, uh, that we close temporarily and we'll open, reopen as soon as the numbers go down. It, it really, it's, it's amazing how many people use it. Uh, you can download ebooks, you can download e-audio books so you can listen to them. That's what I do all the time on my phone. Um, and they can go on phones, tablets, um, and this is for ebooks and e-audio books, um, or any kind of device that you can download to. Uh, we have magazines that you can read. If you want to read the latest Southern Living and you don't want to have to pay for it, you can download it for us, from us, and it just disappears off your uh, phone after a while. Um, we have movies, we have um, mag uh, uh, TV shows, we have uh, comic books. So we've got those, are, that's through Hoopla, um, and Hoopla also has e-books and e-audiobooks. Um, Overdrive has e-audiobooks and e-books. We have Tumble Books, which is a program for kids that it will actually read the book to the child. So you see the, they see the book, books, pages turn, so it's a physical book being read to the child. It is actually even in other languages. So if you've got a, a child that is, uh, I think it's Spanish, French, German, there may be one other language. Um, they can hear it in, in, in another language. Um, and then we have our databases. Well, so you're, Libby, you forgot. Well, Overdrive is Libby. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, the, Overdrive, you know, likes to change things up. Overdrive and Libby are the exact okay. same thing. Okay. Just, uh, they actually start out as Overdrive simply. They changed it to, to Libby, and at some point, Overdrive is, they're the overall company, but they'll eventually go away and it'll just be Libby. So now you're talking about your databases. Yes. The database, we have everything from like, if you need to learn how to fix your car, there's, there's a car repair database. Um, we have, and some of ours are paid for by us and some are paid for by the state, which is great. We also have, if you're into genealogy, we have Ancestry, uh, Ancestry Library and Heritage Quest that you can do online, you can do it from your home. Ancestry Library has in the past been only in-house where you would have to come into the library physically to use it. But because of the pandemic, they have released it to other to you to just do it at home. So if you're doing genealogy, now's the time to get on our system and go into Ancestry Library and Heritage Quest because you'll find an amazing amount of material and it's all free. You don't have to pay anything because Ancestry Library is, is normally, or Ancestry.com is a subscription basis and we've got the free version through the library. Uh, and that's something that we pay for. Um, we have a database that'll let you search through like magazines if you're doing research on just different categories, you can do that. Um, there's Novelist. If you're looking for a book and you don't know what to read, you've read everything by the, all the authors you like, you can put in, you want books that are similar to what John Grisham writes, and it'll give you a list of authors that write like John Grisham or have similar type books. So it's just a wide variety on our website. You go to bar, uh, to serve, uh, research, excuse me, I'll get it right in a second. Go to research on our website and it'll show you all the list of all the things we have. We have um, the main library and then eight branches. So we have them in, uh, let's see if I can do them right, Belton, Honeypath, Iva, uh, Piedmont, Pendleton, Powdersville, Williamston, and then another one here in Anderson at the Westside Community Center. So eight branches. They are open um, a little bit different hours right now because of the pandemic. It's on our, our website if you see it, but normally they have been open from 10 to to six like we have been. We did reduce our hours a little bit because of the pandemic. Um, 
and they're not open on Saturdays, but they're still providing services. You can still go get curbside from them. You can call them or go online and order books from them. As I said earlier, some of them have printing and copying that you can do. They will do actually do it for you. You go to the door, say, here, I've got this. Can you copy it for me? And they'll take care of it for you. We're not allowing, again, people in the library because of, uh, to keep this, the um, pandemic down, hopefully. But we are doing the materials for them and doing the copying for them, the printing, and whatever we can do to help them. And how have the patrons responded? What kind of participation have you had from folks during this last year? Um, it's been really good. I mean, our numbers are down because we're used to having a lot of people being able to come in. Um, if you look at our door count, it's, it's down because of, of people not going to meetings. That's always been a big part of our, our use. But it's not as down as much as I thought it would be. We're probably at about 75% before this last shutdown that we we're just doing. Um, so number-wise, we're not horrible. Uh, people, because they couldn't get physical books a lot of times, so the audio, the e-audio and the e-books have just blossomed and bloomed and grown, and um, people are using those a lot more, which is great. We, we have a wide collection on Libby and on Hoopla, and we want people to use those because we're paying for them, so we'd like them to be used. You think that'll just continue after yeah. everything's cleared up and the virus is gone and all will people still be using more online? I think so. I mean, I, there, there are still people, I mean, I like a physical book, too. It's, you know, I, I like having it in my hand. But the convenience of being able to download a book to my phone and listen to it on my car radio is just invaluable. If you do any kind of traveling, it is so much easier. We had a gentleman in here Monday, and he, was, he needed some audio books, so we went and pulled some for him. And I said, have you tried Libby? I said, if you, you know, go online and do this. And he was like, oh, that's really cool. I didn't know I could do this. And that way he doesn't necessarily have to come in here. Um, we would like him to. I mean, we're not trying to keep people out. But sometimes the convenience of not coming into the building is, is really good, especially, again, during this time we have people at home that, that don't want to or can't come in, uh, even inside just to get a book. So this allows them to do that, and I think that's going to continue. I think it's going to continue with most of our businesses. They're still going to be offering. I mean, curbside is fabulous. If you go to a store and you drive up and they put in your car, I mean, what could be better? So we're doing that same kind of thing here. It's just with our books and it's free. Um, Kindle books are, oh, Libby is one of the few um, downloadable programs that actually have the Kindle books. So we, we will have those for a very long time and provide that access because we still have a lot of people that use Kindle. Still goes through Amazon, so you've still got that Amazon touch, but it's a fairly simple uh, operation. I, I, I think one of the things is we'll still keep that distance piece. You know, where we have moved people, we'll probably leave them just because who knows what the next thing could be. Um, We'll continue to offer some virtual programming as we go along because I think that's, again, an easy thing to do and just it engages people that might not be able to come into the facility. Same thing with some online programming. I see that expanding even more um, as we can do a few more things. We want people to come back in, but we're going to have to continue to adapt and to grow to what they really need. And if people are used to, to the online and to the videos, then, then we'll provide those. Same thing with Zoom. We're getting ready. One of the things I mentioned, the makerspace earlier, we're working on that and trying to expand it. Uh, we've taken over our, or we're taking over our South Carolina room and changing it into the makerspace, but it's also going to have a meeting uh, space too, so it's going to be a dual purpose. And one of the things we're working there and in our meeting rooms downstairs is to get uh, some new technology so that we can 
you can continue to Zoom. I don't think that's going to go away. I think people are going to continue to want to um, meet hybridly. So we're going to try to provide the things that they need for that. So we're going to, I don't, I think some of the things we have figured out now, we'll continue to use and continue to go on and, and do them. Things like curbside, that's probably going to be something we'll just, if somebody calls and needs a book and can't come in for whatever reason, we'll still take it out to them. Um, it'd be lovely if we had a drive up window like some libraries, but we don't, but we'll make it work with what we have. So we want to provide services to people they get used to and, and we'll provide it. Almost everything's on hold. That's the hard part. But we're but we are working on things. We're looking at um, um, one of the things we're working on and have been working on is our children's garden. Um, you can't get into it right now, but one of our staff members here has worked tremendously hard on upgrading it, cleaning it out. She worked with Master Gardeners. She got several grants that helped put in some materials and put. Um, there's a sensory garden down there now. So you can go down and, and see that there's, they've all got, they're all labeled. Um, we've added some um, pieces that will hopefully attract the kids to go out there. There's a musical piece, they can go out there and play music. There's a chalkboard. Um, some of that was done with uh, Councilman Wooten while he was uh, here in office, gave us a grant, which allowed us to buy some of that material so that we could provide, again, just a reason for kids to go outside. Because that's, again, I think we that garden has never been well used just because it's it's a hot area. There's no shade or whatever, but we're trying to make it a little bit more accessible and, and encourage kids to get out because we know the fresh air doesn't matter whether the pandemic's going on or not is important. So we'll continue to grow that and to work with that. We're also working on our story walk for that area, and a story walk is basically where we'll take um, a book, uh, a children's book, of course and um, make copies of the page and do it in a, literally a walk down so that the kids and parents will walk down, read the book page, go to the next. There'll be activities in between there to make them, like here you get to this, this page of the book and it's, you read the book and then at the bottom it may say, now do three jumping jacks or something again to engage them and keep them active and keep them going. Um, and we're working on that now, so it should be up and hopefully when we open back up some point it'll be almost ready. We're we're still working on that. And then um, we did that downtown with the city of some city of Anderson. They um, provided they took Scott Foster's book um, and um, made posters out of it, put it in the storefronts. I don't know if you saw it. And then uh, it gave people a chance just to walk along the storefronts, read the story. Hopefully they went into the stores. So that was a great. Um, cooperation piece because they got the kids and adults got to read the story and got to get that word out and hopefully they came and checked out the book and read it here too um, but we hope to continue that also in the future so we're, t we're looking at ways like that that we can continue to work with other groups and other organizations one of the other things that we're working on right now we because of space um, and just even the volunteer needs we're looking at our um, cafe area it is it's never been a real profitable thing. They usually break even, which is fine, but it's, you know, it's not been a money maker. Um, for the friends, the bookstore usually makes more because it's all, everything's donated, and so then we, we uh, make money off of that, which is wonderful for the friends because they then give it back to the library for children's programming and adult programming and youth programs. But we're, we're looking at, um, the, you know, the city is doing their kitchen 
program and they're doing and there's other people out there we want to look to see if anybody would be interested in coming in and do like a pop-up shop come in for a couple of weeks and sell your products um, at no cost you know it's just we would provide it for you and then um, go away you get another group in so we're trying to do something like that to use the space so that again it draws people into the library because they're coming for the library or they're coming for this pop-up um, but it gives our our entrepreneurs a chance to get their stuff out without having to open up a full store so we're, we're looking at that also it's something that's sort of we're not actively doing it right now but that's something we really want to work toward to provide it because it's in a perfect location it's right as you come in the door it'll be easy to get to um, there's enough room for a small one, so you know, and a small um, an entrepreneur is going to start small anyway. We think, and so we hope that will will continue and that we can get that worked out. It's something we really, really want to do. And if you haven't taken advantage of what we have to offer, or you don't have a library card, you can download a uh, or go online and do a digital library card. It's all free. We'll send the send you a um, card number, and you can access all of our digital products. If you want to do it in-house, you can't do that right now with that digital card, but you can upgrade it if you come into the library once we reopen. But the digital library card will give you access to all of our uh, online materials, from Libby to Hoopla to the research databases um, to just our library card catalog. Anything you need, it's on there with the digital library card. And it just go to our website, which is www.andersonlibrary.org. You can look under Borrow, and that'll get you to the information about the library library card, but also some of our digital resources. And then if you want to follow us on Facebook, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. So follow us, find out information about what's going on at the library and keep up to date so that you know what's happening at your, at your public library. I've said it many times, but we do have uh, among the best library systems anywhere. And if you need anything, just check them out and they, they can help you out. Talking about someone else that can help you out and somebody who's been a really good sponsor and friend to the Anderson Observer, news from people you trust for almost a decade and a half now, Sullivan's Metropolitan Grill downtown. Sullivan's continues to be the best fine, fine dining destination in Anderson and also the best white tablecloth uh, catering service you can find anywhere at prices comparable to the tin pans. Uh, Bill Nickerson and Sabre came and Sabre, we just, we just celebrated one year since we lost Sabre to cancer. And so it's been a tough year. And then on top of that, the pandemic. And um, But Sullivan's has managed to not have to let go any employees. They've come up with creative ways. Uh, buffets on the holidays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, um, Thanksgiving buffet they've been able to do. Uh, takeout and curbside. And then when they were able to open, they distanced and opened outdoor tables and really done a great job. And the food there, again, is, is outstanding. If you go on the weekends, you probably want to call for a reservation. But daily at lunch, Go down there at lunch one day. Uh, I can't recommend more highly their lunches. Best best burgers in town. Nobody else is even close. And they also have that, as I always say, the open face pot roast sandwich, which is the best home cooking in downtown Anderson that you'll find. Just ask for a little extra gravy if you really love it. And tell them you heard about it on the Anderson Observer News from people you trust. And you can find Sullivan's Metropolitan Grill and Sullivan's Caters on Facebook or just look them up online and they'll be glad to set up a reservation for you. Even at lunch, you can reserve a table at Sullivan's Metropolitan Grill, one of our favorite sponsors. Well, Anderson continues to grow, and we should soon have the census numbers to confirm the details of that growth. Estimates are pretty wide in their range. Some say a little over 200 from 204, and some really maybe over the top are estimating up to 210,000. 
with the growth mainly in areas starting in the north part of the city of Anderson and spreading both northeast and northwest toward Pendleton and the Powdersville Piedmont areas. They sort of fan out in those directions. The population is not just growing there, it is exploding and they're going through all the growing pains of zoning and all kinds of other things there. This should lead to some new voting district lines and it might be a good time to add two more seats to Anderson County Council, something to consider. Some of the current lines defining districts no longer even remotely resemble the communities that existed at the time those lines were drawn and two more members would give citizens an even more uh, intensive local representation for their areas and more neighborhoods that uh, have more in common. So I'd really like to see that looked at. And while we're at it, let's petition for a change to make all county elections nonpartisan. There continues to be no reason for our representative county council to be affiliated with a national party that has nothing to do with our local interests. And in fact, it can be a hindrance come election time. People who are really not that politically oriented but want to be community servants and public servants don't want to get into the politics of it but would like to run in nonpartisan. The city already does it, the city of Anderson, and their nonpartisan uh, elections work really well. Love to see that for the county. The county just posted an unemployment rate of 4.1% for December. Those figures were just released by the state, South Carolina. Uh, that's up from 3.4% in November, but it's seasonally adjusted. That seems to be about the dip that happens every year in that time. Uh, statewide, the unemployment rate is 6.4% for South Carolina. I'm sorry, 4.6% for South Carolina, and the national unemployment rate is at 6.7%, so we remain low. But just to remind people how much this pandemic has impacted things before the pandemic, Anderson County's unemployment rate was down around 2.1%. At least two uh, economic development announcements are expected by mid-February, so things are steady in the county and continue to grow and there continue to be jobs. There's a job fair next week at the Civic Center on February 4th that people can drive in and get information. The last one they did, a lot of people got jobs on the spot. So if you're looking for a job, February 4th at the Civic Center, you can find that on information on Facebook. County Council will meet Tuesday and they'll be voting on some of the uh, tax incentives for expansion of current and, and, and new uh, uh, economic development in Anderson County. And there'll be one member short now until June when the special election for the seat left vacated by the death of Council, Councilwoman Gracie Floyd uh, will be filled. You can see the Anderson Observer, news from people you trust. For details on filing for the seat and the dates for the special election and the filing deadlines, it's all there. So uh, Gracie will be missed. I don't think there'll be a real problem. We don't have a real division in council now. We have not had very few votes that were, you know, more than one or two uh, nays. So six, I don't think six members and being even are going to be evenly divided. That'd be my, that's just my evaluation for now. In other news, Anderson County, which is the largest private university in the state of South Carolina now, it's grown so exponentially over the last decade with more than 3,500 students found their graduate programs ranked among the best in the state in U.S. News and World Report's latest rankings again. Uh, so you can find out more about that. They continue to grow. And a university, particularly one that's growing and vibrant, continues to bring so much to our community. And Anderson really does benefit from the growth of Anderson University. And we appreciate all the work they're doing out there with Evans Whitaker and his, his staff and faculty and the continued growth there. And as January ends, so does the downtown holiday ice rink. This rink has had another good year and, and um, testing it uh, out to stay open until the end of the month was mostly good. It looks like next year they may be trimming it back to closing after MLK Day. Uh, the final numbers will be in early next week after the, it closes the 31st. So we'll get those final numbers in and you can read about that in the Anderson Observer News from People You Trust. But it's good to see Carolina Wren drawing people downtown with restrictions and distancing and masks and other precautions. Uh, people are just so looking forward to getting 
together and getting outdoors and it's good to have a place they can do that that's safe and we're looking forward, forward to a time when the park and all of downtown activities can return. Uh, I'd still love to see the park find a permanent sponsor, a Verizon Carolina Wren Park. If they'll give Anderson, City of Anderson and Carolina Park a million dollars, we can, we can work something out. Uh, this is true countywide. All of the festivals that were canceled this past year, I know people miss them. Uh, everything from the you know Pendleton Jubilee to the Chili Cook-Off in Belton to Springwater Festival, just on and on and on it goes on. Uh, the, the festivals, are, people are just tired of not being able to gather and see their friends at festivals and at the theater. All our theaters have been shut down. At churches, most of them have been shut down or at least limited. And even if you're there, you can't do more than just wave and look behind your mask. And all the other places, people are ready to get back where they can hug each other and shake hands and be seen by their friends and neighbors and see their friends and neighbors. And that's just such an important thing. And one of those neighbors that uh, is here in Anderson now is Anderson resident John Harris. He's an Erskine professor who has written a book, The Last Slave Ships, New York and the End of the Middle Passage, it's from Yale Press. And it is a compelling work. And it fills up so many of the gaps on slavery and the African slave trade in this country uh, that is absent from most of the history books. And I read a lot of history books, and I learned a lot. I read this book. And I mean, it's, it's about 313 pages or so, if I'm, I'm guessing right. I read it in like three days. It's, it's a really, for a history book, it's a compelling read and it's fast. And I talked to John recently about the book. One note here, I did have some audio issues with my primary recording and was forced to use my backup recording, but it works pretty well. Yeah, the, the vocals are clear. Um, so if you hear a little click here or there, you'll know what happened. John is a native of Northern Ireland and uh, eventually found his way to Anderson after taking part in an international education opportunity in North Carolina. And I enjoyed my conversation with John. I've got strong ties to this place. I've been, uh, been here about 10 years now. Now, you kind of glazed past it. How did you get to Western North Carolina? I mean, that's... Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting one. It was, um, there's a program called the Business Education Initiative. I'd subsequently changed its name, but it was uh, set up in, in Northern Ireland in conjunction with church-affiliated colleges in the United States. I think there were about 100 of those colleges who participated in this program. And uh, it ran, I think, in the 90s and then into the 2000s when I went. And their, their plan was, these church-affiliated colleges, was to bring two students from Northern Ireland, one Catholic and one Protestant, and bring them to the United States and um, where they could, you know, have been a different context. And I think the idea was maybe that they would kind of like learn to love each other or, you know, mm. overcome differences. And at the same time, um, I guess, take business classes, and maybe bring entrepreneurialism back to Northern Ireland, because the idea was they'd only be there for one year and then go back to, to um, Ireland, which, which I did. So that um, was how I made it to the United States and specifically how I ended up at this small college, Montreat College in Western North Carolina. You know, I didn't have a say over that. Um, I was just sort of matched with them. So I said, I did say to them, yeah, send me to North or South Carolina. It sounded interesting to me. So uh, they sent me to Montreal. So I was there for a year and that's my entryway into the United States. Well, at least you came into a beautiful spot, if nothing else. <laughs> I did, you know, it was the first time in the US and I remember the plane circling down, getting ready to land over Asheville airport. And I, you know, I mean, I just couldn't believe what a beautiful place it was. Um, so. 
What was that experience like at Mine Tree? Did, did you, uh, did you find that pleasant or just odd or? You know, it was, there's a bit of culture shock at the start, which I think anyone would experience. Um, and then it was a different educational environment, largely because of the size. I think they only had about, I think maybe only 400 students there when, and I was coming from a big university, I don't know, maybe 15,000 people. So the fact that, you know, you could know everybody <laughs> and they would know you, I guess I stuck out as the Irishman, but you know, that you could know people. And then that the class sizes were, you know, 20 or so instead of a big lecture theater of 200. Um, it was altogether a more kind of intimate environment. And then of course you're up in the mountains and it, you know, it, it, I'd never seen education like it. And um, it, I loved it. It was a fantastic year. And actually, you know, it's not so different from what we've got here at, at Erskine. So there's a connection there too. What Were you already interested in the colonial history here at that time, or did you begin to work on it more then? Or? Yeah, I, you know, I, I wasn't terribly interested in the United States, to be perfectly honest, as a, you know, being back in Ireland as a history major. It was mostly, you know, European history and things like that, that, you know, it was closer to home. I hadn't really been exposed to the U.S. history. I was pretty ignorant of it, to be honest. It's just not taught in in school, you know. I guess like some um, geographies and topics wouldn't be taught over here. It, the United States just didn't really make it into the curriculum. But when I found myself living here, I guess the uh, that triggered my my interest. And. How did how did you kind of narrow it down? I mean, I know we're skipping a lot here because then you went to graduate school and you came back, but um, narrow it down to the slave ship for your that you're in your book that we're talking about here. Last slave ships, yeah. Yeah, it was um, when I was doing my master's degree in history, and that was still back in Ireland. I was um, I was reading a book by a historian Vernon Burton, who's at, at Clemson actually in the history department there. Um, he wrote a book called The Age of Lincoln, and in that book, he wrote just a paragraph about a slave ship that arrived in Charleston in 1858, and uh, that was just so strange because I knew that you know abolition of the slave trade, banning of the slave trade had happened 50 years before that, and he pointed out that it was an illegal voyage, but I wanted to know more. So I wrote a um, master's thesis on that one ship. And um, then when I came to the U.S. and went to graduate school and was faced with writing a doctoral dissertation, <clears throat> I thought, I'm going to write about, you know, the other ships. I'd find some other ships, too, that had crossed the Atlantic in this period. So I just, you know, this is going to be my topic. And I dug deeper and deeper. And, you know, by the end of my research, there were, turned out there were about 500 ships, and this is a very big story. Um, so that's uh, how I ended up at the, the topic of what became the book. Well, and I don't think most history books uh, deal with very much uh, detail on the the ships and the that, the very heart of the slave trade. It was uh, obviously the economic engine that drove trades in some parts of the world well after the Civil War. Um, and I think the book did a good job of that. I think, sadly... America continued to make much of it possible by at least passively allowing slave owners to fly under their flag 
Um, I thought the thing, one thing in your book, I remember uh, for as little as $25, some of the American captains would sign off to, uh, to basically fly the American flag to, to, to deal in slave trade from Africa. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I mean, this is a big sort of international story and um, a, a lot of places have a hand in it. You know, of course, bef before it was illegal, you know, almost everywhere has a hand in it. And after it's banned in the early 1800s, um, most places have a hand in it too, in a, you know, continuing to have a hand in it. And the United States has got a mixture of a very active role in it and a somewhat passive role in it too, yeah. Yeah, and it seems like, uh, I'm going to get back to that in a second, but help me understand why the Portuguese seem to play such a big part in this. I mean, your book dealt with the, the people who, you know, moved to New York and the Portuguese there that came by very, very, but it seems like the Portuguese, uh, Portugal itself, uh, helped, didn't their ships bring about six million slaves from Africa after it was all said and done, something like that? Yeah, so uh, Portugal is actually the number one um, carrier, if you will, of enslaved Africans in the history of the transatlantic slave trade. So you know, Portugal is really, really deeply involved in the traffic, and that's largely because it has um, uh, a big sort of slave-producing colony, if you will, in Africa, which is Angola. Right. More captives come from that area than anywhere else. And then more captives go to Brazil, which is another Portuguese colony, than anywhere else as well. So you have a very powerful system running between, uh, you know, Angola and uh, and Brazil for hundreds of years, and um, it it really motors on deeply, deeply, deeply into the 1800s. And um, so a lot of American involvement in the slave trade is actually connected to that sort of center of gravity, which is in the South Atlantic. And you wrote about the British, which, while they were not exactly consistent in their opposition to slavery because they continued to be huge importers of sugar and other goods from slave nations, they at least made an attempt, especially after they got their navy built back up, to go after these uh, slave traders. What, what would have happened if the British had not taken an interest in it? <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Uh, a counterfactual, which is always fun to play with in, in the classroom. Um, what would have happened if something hadn't have happened. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I imagine the slave trade would have continued at even even greater scale. I mean, the, the British are able to exert um, more influence than anywhere else, really, because they are any other single nation, because they're the most powerful at the time. So, um, yeah, the slave trade would have undoubtedly been greater without the British. But, um, you know, I think one of the main takeaways is from, even from British suppression, of the slave trade, even though they make much greater efforts than almost anywhere else, um, they're not able to to beat it back. Um, so, yeah, that's how I would sum that one up. You know, the British do more than most, but even they're not able to to do everything. It, it, you know, you need the sort of full cooperation of all of these nations to make it happen and actually you know there might be some modern day lessons when you think about people trafficking and drug traffic and things like that um you know you got a few rogue nations if you will it's very hard to stop them and the americans made it particularly difficult for decades right yeah they did they did and that's um you know a good part of that is 
because Americans are fiercely jealous of any other nation searching American ships, so the British weren't allowed to search them. But, you know, then that might lead you to the obvious question of, <clears throat> well, why did the Americans do this themselves? And, you know, I have some arguments in the book about about that, why the Americans were not suppressing this, the trade themselves. And, you know, it's just not a priority for American administrations, really the American people either. It's not a priority. The major priority that I see it, one of them, at least connected to the slave trade, is the acquisition of Cuba and uh, um, the, you know, the Democratic Party has a um, really aiming to bring Cuba into the United States and so it blames Cuba for the traffic and therefore um, kind of uh, downplays the United States' own involvement in that trade to, to the island of Cuba. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting part of the book where um, they kept trying to buy Cuba from Spain. Uh, if Spain had sold Cuba to America, it's not one of those what ifs. Uh, what, where would we be? Yeah. Or what would have happened then? I mean, because the, the, Americans, they're, they're, of course, it was a deeply divided nation and the Southerners were, you know, paying lip service to opposing slave trade from Africa, but not really against it. Yeah, um, the, the the American South slavery is you know alive and well and stronger than ever, and you know this is one of the maybe the misconceptions of, in the antebellum history that you know slavery was kind of um, weaker than we think. I mean, slavery was incredibly powerful and strong, and you know, secession in many ways was was uh, a decision taken from a position of strength. I mean, um, you, you know, enslaved people are, are more valuable in, in total than any, you know, than railroads, uh, than, um, um, you know, any other sort of form of capital, if you will, in the 1850s, 1860s. So in the United States as a whole. So the South is very powerful. The slave system is very robust. But that that slave system does not depend on the illegal slave trade, um, because there is um, a very large slave trade internally coming from the Upper South, Virginia, Maryland, for example, to the expanding Lower South and, and increasingly the West. So the demand of planters or enslavers, we might say, in the Lower South is um, already being able to be met without having to reopen the slave trade to southern shores. But as the book points out, Americans, uh, predominantly in the north, but Americans in association with others are very deeply involved in uh, bringing slaves to Cuba from the African coast. Right, that's what I was going to say. So that the the sort of turning a blind eye to Cuba was why they wanted to make Cuba a state. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh huh. There, yes. So the argument is, um, oh, the democratic argument is that we want to. Yes, they certainly want to add Cuba as a state. And they're saying, oh well, the slave trade certainly is a bad thing, and the Spanish government, which. Uh, you know, um, are kind of in charge in Cuba because it's a Spanish colony. The Spanish government are allowing this terrible slave trade to happen, this illegal slave trade to happen. But if we annex Cuba, 
or in some way brought it into the United States, then that would be the way to stop the slave trade. And so it's just another argument. I mean, it's it's an argument for annexation that's kind of cynically deployed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was hard to buy when I read. I was thinking <laughs> some of the people that were being quoted saying that were not exactly. <laughs> Uh, yeah. People that were trustworthy, but it would have been war with Spain if we had tried to take Cuba, though, wouldn't it? It would have been yes, it, yes, it would absolutely, yeah. Since Spain had long since you know lost almost all of its colonies you know, in the Americas, like Mexico, for example, uh, but it retained Cuba and Puerto Rico, and those were especially Cuba was very valuable. So Cuba wasn't Spain wasn't about to let it go easily, and that's why it refused um, to. Uh, many financial offers for it from the United States. One of the, one of the most interesting and, and fun parts of the book, I thought, was the role that spies played uh, in helping particularly the British curb the slave trade from Africa. And there was one spy in particular that was reported, what, like 177 out of 230, like 70% of he was correct on. I can't imagine he went through newspapers how difficult it was for him to get his hands on all that stuff. And, and, and t- tell people about that spy, that, that one in particular, and about spies in general. Sure, right. So um, it it turns out that um, the British government, who we've mentioned, was more dedicated than most to suppress the slave trade wherever it occurred, um, in the Americas, in Africa, all over on the sea. Um, it, it turns out that um, the British had um, a lot of um, spies. So anywhere the slave trade was active in say New York or Havana or Rio de Janeiro or on the African coast, the British would typically have a consul or some kind of representative there. And they would have that consul find a spy or sometimes the spy would find the British consul and they'd work out an agreement whereby the British government would pay the spy through the consul um, for the spy to you know, inform on what's going on on the docks you know, what is the, what's really happening here? And that spy would would feed information to the British and the British would try to ultimately stop the slave trade, um, often using their, their ships that were patrolling the African coast. So in the, in the book, I lay out that system um, and I, I dive into one spy in particular and his name was Emilio Sanchez. He was a Cuban immigrant in New York where the slave trade was based in the 1850s and 1860s in the United States. And uh, Emilio Sanchez um, spent just over three years um, spying on on this uh, fraternity of slave traders in lower Manhattan. So he'd he'd go out onto the docks and he'd he'd talk to sailors and captains and to merchants, see what the latest news was about ships and which one was a slave ship and you know, when was it, uh, who owned it and when was it going to leave New York? And he himself was a, a merchant. He imported uh, sugar from um, Cuba and he was a ship owner. So he had a kind of natural rapport with with these people on the docks. He also literally spied on the slave traders, you know, hung out in dark alleyways and watched them come in and out of buildings and tried to piece everything together. He used newspapers, yep, to, um, newspapers would list you know, the names of ships and when they were coming and going, they'd have they'd get that information from the custom house. So he would pour over newspapers to try to fill in some of the details. So um, in all, he was very, very effective. He, um, you know, of, of uh, 
all the slave ships that left New York, I think he, uh, he knew of about, yeah, about three quarters of them. So he was very effective. And many, many slave ships were actually intercepted by the British on the basis of his information on the African coast. So you've got slave ships leaving New York that end up on the African coast. They're about to bring captives aboard and they're intercepted by the British. And all of that is done on the basis of this spy's information back in Manhattan. And more ships, if they had listened to him a little more directly, he would, they would have captured even more ships, correct? Um, well, that's it. sounded like some of those things were ignored a little bit. Well, he, he certainly um, um, didn't, he wasn't paid as he was supposed to be paid. Right. Now I was going to mention that. He was, yeah, they shorted him <laughs> tremendously. Yeah. I know. You know what? I um I find a uh, descendant of his who didn't know anything about their ancestor. Uh, so I found a descendant of the spy um several years ago, and I've lost touch with him. But I want to get in touch with him again to say, look, you need to approach the British Foreign Office and get <laughs> <laughs> some back pay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, the the British government, you know, they, it's it was it was quite shocking to see at the archives how they. You could see the paper trail. You could see that the British were gathering his, using him and using him, using him to, to really build a, um, you know, apparatus of slave trade suppression around him in some ways. You know, the way they, they copied the documents, they passed it from this office to that office. They took it really, really seriously. Um, and the, the British naval officers kept saying, oh, yeah, this information is great. We intercepted this ship with 800 slaves on it. Because of the spy in New York, you know, you can see his effectiveness is right there in the records. But then you also see in other files, the British saying, um, you know, writing to New York and to Sanchez saying, you know, well, we can't be sure whether we captured that ship on your information. So therefore, we're not going to pay you because um, he was supposed to be paid on the basis of captures. So the British definitely gypped him. Uh, no doubt about that. Right, and there's no way for him to really fly. He had mixed motives too, though. You mentioned if they had burned one of his ships or something that had kind of, he was still a little peeved about. Yeah, yeah, you're right, and you know this is pretty common uh, when you know you dig into the dig into the past. It's not sort of all, all super clear, or not everybody has the happy motives that you would like them to have. I mean, and the Sanchez, the spy had been involved with these slave traders before he came a spy. And it's hard, it's a bit of a he said, she said thing, where he said, you know, um, I was kind of tricked by these guys. I didn't know they were slave traders. And then, you know, he got into some legal trouble for a ship that he had involvement with that turned out to be a slave ship. And he said, I had no idea. Um, and the British believed him. Um, I'm not entirely convinced he didn't know what was going on. Um, so, um, but the, the slave traders abandoned him after that voyage and um, he got into legal trouble for it when he claimed it was all really their fault. And so he was angry with them. So revenge was certainly a motive and that was a motive of other spies too. Um, and he was certainly, um, you know, one of them paid for his services, which is, you know, I mean, we can't be too critical of that. Um, but so there were a few, you know, a, a few motives and it's worth saying too that his, uh, 
his brother was a slave owner in Cuba. So, you know, it's it's a little hard to say. We we can call him an abolitionist. I mean, he's certainly fighting against the slave trade, but we uh, be hesitant to say that he was, you know, entirely anti-slavery. Well, <laughs> you know, it is fair uh, to say that they, was, they crossed the wrong guy, though. Whatever his motives were, they. Well, yes, he certainly got his revenge. That's that's true. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also that the the the, um, the uh, British. Um, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, I'll move on for that. But I was going to move ahead a little bit in your book. You know, you were talking about Lincoln's pivotal role and that it, you know, it took him two years as president to get Congress serious about stopping slave trade from Africa. R- remind people of the significance of that work. Of Lincoln's? Yeah, Lincoln and uh, when they finally were able to pass legislation to... Uh, uh, allow them to, to to stop using the American flag to move. Right, right. So throughout the eighteen um, fifties, you know, the slave trade, U.S. involvement in the slave trade is is kind of increasing and increasing, all the way to the presidential election, all the way to secession, really, in eighteen sixty. Um, it, it's getting worse and worse, and all the while, the, the Democratic uh, administrations have been in power and kind of turning a blind eye to the trade, mostly. Um, and Lincoln and the Republicans have been criticizing the Democrats um, all, all the while. And, you know, Lincoln and the Republicans are, you know, an anti-slavery um, party. Um, there were kind of limitations to their anti-slavery, but they were certainly anti-slavery. Um, and certainly they were against the, the slave trade. Um, so some historians would criticize Lincoln for not actually being uh, fierce enough on slavery, but certainly on the transatlantic slave trade. I mean, Lincoln really did want to um, kill that as quickly as possible. And um, despite the um, you know the war starting and um, it being a, obviously a very inc- incredibly busy time, um, Lincoln and his administration do. Um, dismantle the slave trade um, within about a year or so. Um, so some of the things they do are they appoint new officials in New York who are not corrupt. Many of them previously had accepted bribes to let ships sail out of port. That didn't that didn't happen anymore. Um, and maybe most significantly, you had um, the Americans sign a treaty with the British that let the British um, intercept sh- slave ships that were flying the American flag. So um, that, in conjunction with one final thing, which was a slave trader being executed in eight, early 1862, Lincoln refused to commit the death sentence. All of those things together um, had the result of um, uh, the slave traders in New York fleeing and uh, the, the slave trade under the American flag really dying. And the slave trade as a whole, actually. Um, only lasted about another four or five years at a diminishing scale. So, you know, the United States had a very big role in sustaining the illegal slave trade to Cuba and uh, illegally, but in the end, whenever they took decisive action against the traffic, they really crippled it. Yeah, I think Lincoln sometimes, you're right, He there are some, if you try to measure him against modern understandings, but given the age, he, uh, you talked to the the execution, he received, what, 11,000 letters asking him to stay the execution? 
uh, something yes. like that. And uh, he went ahead with it. And I, I think you're right. If if they had not had the the courage to, you know, make sure no American flags were used and, you know, those kind of things that who knows how much longer it would have gone on from Africa. Yep. I mean, the American flag had been used in the illegal slave trade for decades. And, uh, you know, it was it was crucial. And in the uh, Nothing New Under the Sun Department, um, the Southern leaders were obviously complicit in all both sides of the trade, as you wrote. But also the church was complicit in the age of the trade and refused to take an anti-slavery stand. Yes, right. Well, yeah, I mean, the it's been well documented that the uh, churches in the United States really split over the slavery issue in, in the 19th century. And um, so... I'm looking at, well, how did the church respond to the illegal slave trade? I mean, surely there'd be universal condemnation of the illegal slave trade. I mean, it was against the law. Um, but what we see is, um, you know, the, the New York Diocese um, of the Episcopal Church, certainly, uh, which is, you know, the slave trade is going on right, right under their, uh, <laughs> under the, um, under their noses. Um, they don't want to really touch the issue, and some ministers say, "Hey, we need we should condemn this traffic," um, but they uh, it's too thorny an issue. There's not there's certainly not universal. Um, they don't want to universally condemn it, which is really pretty shocking. Uh, but you know, maybe not that surprising when we look at the longer history of the United States uh, slavery and, and the church. Well, Hosea Williams, the civil rights activist that I, I used to know pretty well, said that uh, it, the Klansmen didn't scare him as much as the ones who held their coats while they did their work. Right. Well, right. And here we are talking on Martin Luther King Day. And, you know, yeah. Martin Luther King certainly had things to say about, um, you know, uh, the complicity of silence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or he, he, sometimes it's even trying to uh, to uh, do some sort of make some sort of justification for it or uh mm-hmm. After I don't know how much you've written about this, because I've just read your books, all I've read by you so far, and uh, I will highly recommend the book. I'll mention it again where people can get it. But uh, after the Civil War, um, how much did the dissolution of slavery shape the history of the slave states in the next you know decade or two? Um, how did how did uh, the end of slavery affect the? Yeah, I mean, it's, particularly not not just necessarily in the United States, but in the other. I know Brazil continued with slavery what until the eighties, eighteen eighties, or something. Yes, right. So the United States emancipation, you know, finally secured Thirteenth Amendment in eighteen sixty five, but Brazil and Cuba are later, you know, eighteen eighties. So another generation, you know. So it's actually useful to think about if there had not been a civil war. Uh, you know, we could well have had slavery in the United States for another generation. You know, something we don't often think about, but the international comparisons suggest that that very much could have been the case. And, you know, there are more enslaved people in the American, in, in the United States than there were in Cuba and Brazil. So very powerful, as I said. So, you know, the, the Civil War really um, um, was was critical to the ending of, of slavery. Um, and. Um, it would have survived most likely for another generation. At least that um, form of slavery, they you know were bringing in Irish as indentured servants and keeping them in cages and letting them work for people and other things way after the Civil War. Right. Well, what what we see in um, yeah in the American 
sides during you know reconstruction is you know um african americans being able to sort of take a, a step forward for sure but then with the collapse of reconstruction uh, which is one of the real tragedies of american history uh you know after that we see of course the imposition of um jim crow and um racialized violence and, and, and other things so you know the view of uh, american historians uh, of course is that you know reconstruction was a real uh, missed opportunity um so you know people certainly um are no longer african americans no longer enslaved but um it is not um a sort of straight story into something you know much better yeah, and Lincoln, if Lincoln had lived, that's not, we're, we're playing what-if games again, but I can't help but do that. Um, I mean, you think about Lincoln probably was the last president that was assassinated or even attempted assassination that was a purely political motive. The rest of them have been various forms of mental illness, unless you want to include uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, but his really was not an anti-Kennedy thing. He was just anti-government thing. But most of the rest of them have not been a direct... I'm going to stop this guy because he's doing this. You've got Charlie Gitto, and then you've got, I mean, you st- two people try to kill Gerald Ford, of all people. That's still the strangest presidency to have two assassination attempts, in, at least in my lifetime. Yeah, that is, that's one of the big what ifs. What if not Andrew Johnson, who's regarded by historians to be a pretty bad president? You know, what if? Yeah, why didn't nobody try to assassinate Andrew Johnson? There's the question. That's the, uh, <laughs> but because uh, people were big on assassination there for a while. Um, let's fast forward to the modern era. How familiar are you with what they refer to as the modern day slave trade? I've read stories about shrimping boats that never dock with slaves on board doing labor. And of course, the sex trade, they're saying there may be as many as 40 million slaves in the world today. Do you know very much about that? I, I do not have expertise in that, no. Um, but absolutely, I mean, um, it is a, a major, major global scourge. We we do talk about it and I cl- teach a class here called, at Erskine called Contemporary Global Issues. And, you know, we look at these kinds of problems and, you know, there's certainly connections with, with the slave trade um, of uh, several hundred years ago. You know, all the the debates that we have today, many of them were had, you know, back in the 1800s, you know, what about, you know, how can we stop this? Um, Is, uh, you know, block, you know, do we we try to cut it off on say, um, you know, on the sort of supply side or do we try to deal with it on the demand side? Um, or do we try to sort of cut it off in transit? You know, I mean, that was one of the great debates about this British naval squadron, you know, is it doing more harm than good? You know, there are arguments both ways. So um, there's definitely parallels and, um, uh, you know, slave, is one, of the, one of the things that historians increasingly pointed to, historians of slavery, is that, you know, slavery ends but it doesn't end with the stroke of a pen and it doesn't people's lives are changed but it's um more often than not and even the same would apply to cuba and brazil it didn't morph it morphed into something somewhat similar and so really unfreedom if you can put it that way is um be with us for hundreds of years thousands of years and it uh you know it's 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 really difficult to end. Well, it takes and and it it 
it's difficult uh, for somebody like me whose family roots in Scotland go back forever to say something good about the British. But I will say, you know, in, in the, the at least the fairly modern era, the the British did have people in places of power that were abolitionists way before it was popular and fought for it in ways that we didn't see for a while in this country. And that, that was, a, I think, it, you talked about it, can't, it has to be both and. It has to be supply, demand, and, of course, the philosophical, moral, spiritual aspect of how do you get somebody to flip that switch back on that they have a soul again that can actually take people and sell them for a few shekels here and there. Yeah, yes, I agree. There's going to be awareness. Um, there has going to be a change of hearts and minds. And then I, there has to be government intervention action powerfully, yeah. And that that was a good example of uh, certainly not, you know, de, but it was de facto slavery was the 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 movements of the civil rights movement, and it uh, it took civil disobedience, it took laws, it took uh, it took LBJ of all people to uh, mm-hmm. to make a a real substantial change after decades and decades of of just horrors. Um, I've interviewed people who very vividly remember sitting at the table and watching the clan ride up and drag a relative out and hang them in the front yard. I mean, people think that is ancient history, but it's not. Mm. It's not that terribly long ago. Well, yeah, I think those are good examples. And it's the same with slavery. You know, you have activism. Um, you've got, you know, campaigns change people's minds, but then you have, you know, strong action. And, you know, the Civil War was one example, but you know, civil rights legislation was was another. So, all of those strands have to come together. What do you hope people will take away from reading your book? Yeah, that's a, a good one. Um, I think that I want people to know first of all that you know the the slave trade did not end in eighteen oh eight. It continued, and I guess as a modern day implication, you know, we have to be aware, informed, and vigilant of evils in society, and to to do something about them. Um, at a more um, academic level, I guess, I would like people to think about American history in. Um, international perspective i think that's you know the the book is is about in the titles the last leaf ships new york and the end of the middle passage but the book could not just be a book about new york because um the slave trade in new york was supported and connected to a whole world and that's what i really try to bring out in the book um i talk about africa and cuba and britain and all that you have to to understand it So, you know, if we can think about American history, yes, sure, at the very local level, on the streets of New York, and yes, at the national level, thinking about, you know, politics, for example, and that was important, but see how we are connected to a broader world. Maybe this is coming from me as an immigrant, (laughs) you know, seeing those connections. But, you know, the United States in the 1800s and today, is placed in a broader constellation of connections that offer a lot of explanatory power. And remind people what you're doing now. How'd you get to South Carolina? Well, I finished my PhD in 2017 and I saw the job ad for Erskine 
and I applied for it and I got the job. So um, having a, you know, a tenure track job in history is wonderful. There aren't too many of those jobs out there anymore. Um, so um, Don, I came, my wife is from Western North Carolina, so she's near family too. So we're, um, <clears throat> we're very <clears throat> happy um, in, in the upstate we live in Anderson. Um, and it's, it's great to teach at a small college like this that really, um, you know, values, you know, the liberal arts, you know, that you know, careful, critical thinking and a broad curriculum and having small classes in which to do that, the, the quality of education that we can offer and it is, is really great, I think, and uh, our students really appreciate it's a great learning environment. So I'm, you know, really happy. Uh, to be able to do that down here. Well, what's next? I know writing a, a book is hard work. You're probably getting your second win now. Um, do you have another book in mind, or you have a plan for your next project? Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm. I'm writing a few pieces at the moment based on the book um, that'll be coming out on the History Channel website and in Smithsonian Magazine. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm working on on book related things um, just to bring it to a broader public um right now and yeah once i get this semester over and you know it's chaotic with covid but in the summer i'll start thinking about what the next the next one's going to be i'm sure it'll be again in the 1800s probably pre-civil war and i imagine it'll be uh something to do with the united states and kind of like you know it's global perspective again I, I think because that's where my interest lies because that's my own experience you know the united states and and the world other places so whatever it will be i think it'll have those themes running through it well i can't recommend it more highly uh the last slave ships new york and the end of the middle passage john harris it's a good books on amazon you can find it anywhere and uh it's a very for a history book with that much uh detail in it it was a pretty fast read i read it in like three days so it's uh and so i highly recommend that to folks if you're interested in history as i said you you, you don't want to miss reading this book it's really it, it it brought up some things that i had seen you know maybe a paragraph or two on here and it, it really delineated the the issues in, in ways that i had not read before and again i'll say it again the last slave ships new york and the end of the middle passage john harris it is available on amazon and everywhere else we sometimes forget uh, what a wonderful place we live in with people from all over the world moving here, people like John Harris who help make our community richer. And I've long made the point that it's most often the people who are new to our community, which uh, hilariously usually means they weren't born here to most old timers, but people that are new to our community that are on the front lines of our volunteer efforts and service back to this community and charities and other things. And we really appreciate all the efforts of everybody here uh, adding to our already rich heritage, uh, those who were not born here, who chose to make Anderson County their home, bring in new ideas and approaches which just further enrich everything in our community. And it's just really good to talk to folks who have come here and, and done well and love being here. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, join me next week for another episode of the Anderson Observer Podcast, News from People You Trust. But until then, get out and do something to make our community a better place to work and live. Well, the trade. Oh, the story does begin I will go back to my kin Cross the sea Pledge of birth that's long away
song of home endlessly Well, the further I must go And the nearer I must stay Men of sails, and seas I can see the harbor lights 